Oh, we should do it. Oh, Adam, wait. Oh, That's my first Okay, guys. We have a special guest lecturer, Dr. Kunal Kaji, did his residency at USC. And then. It was the old county. Is the director of emergency medical services at Smithfield Valley and works with the infamous Dr. Meloshik. So just as a background, uh, my name is Pranav Kachi. Uh, I work with emergency, Emergent Medical Associates. I've been with them for, this is my 13th year. You probably have heard of this group in the uh, Southern California area. Um, I, when I started, I started with a mom-and-pop operation, uh, one of the owners of the group is Mark Bell, who's also a former UCI grad. Um, and uh, it, at that time, they had two contracts. And now they've, in the last 10 years or so, they've uh, branched out, and they have about 24 plus. Um, the newest contract is actually a new hospital in Temecula Valley. Uh, if you guys are familiar with Temecula, it's the wine country. Um, we're about 30 minutes north of San Diego, near, uh, close to Carlsbad, which is actually where I'm going to live, near the beach. Um, and commute uh, on the freeway on the 15. Um, and we're just past south of uh, Lake Elsinore and Murrieta. It's a brand new hospital. Uh, I took this job there because I think it's a once in a lifetime uh, job for me. Uh, I, th I like to do things. If you're out in community practice, unlike academics, you can get kind of bored and burned out at times. So uh, it's nice to take on new adventures, whether you teach or come give a conference uh, lecture like this or take on an administrative role or something, uh, you need to do something to basically recharge yourself uh, every five to ten years. If you're in academics, you're going to be charged every day you come to work. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of residents and students, so they're always constantly stimulating you. Um, when you're out in community practice, you can really burn out, um, and that's, that's a big problem in our field. So uh, I, I talked to Karen about this. Uh, coming here. Um, if any of you are interested, we're looking for a good mix of seasoned ER docs and new grads. Um, you know, if not this year, the next couple of years. And if any of you have any questions, advice about life, if you want to join EMA as, uh, as, a, uh, as a, a stepping stone to move into another hospital, um, please call me. Uh, I think that this is something innovative that we're doing over at Temecula Valley Hospital. We have a nice new ED. We're practicing lean methodology, Six Sigma. If you guys, any of you are, have an MBA, um, it's something cool. Uh, it's a gr good group of people. Uh, a lot of folks from Loma Linda that are joining our uh, ship. So uh, I left Karen some cards. So please contact me, uh, as, even if you want a job at another site. And uh, I was asked to. I, I hear this is OB month. Um, I don't know how, how many people moonlight here have worked at any community uh, hospitals where they don't have LND. So it can be a challenge. There's a lot of communities out there um, in the EDs that don't have labor and delivery, and you're going to be still seeing a lot of pregnant women. I'm allergic to pregnant women, <laughs> uh, unless it's a family member or my wife. Um, but patients, I'm, I'm compli I'll be. I'm afraid. I'm allergic. Uh, they scare me, um, it's, it's, and I think most ER docs feel that way. So I, I, I decided to talk about hypertension and pregnancy, which is obviously everyone's favorite topic, right? <laughs> I love it. 
<laughs> and you probably all know all this. I'm just, this is just a review for all you folks. So I have no actual or potential conflict of interest to this presentation, my disclosure slide. So this is a common, complica common medical complication of pregnancy. Six to eight percent of gestations in the U.S. They have this a society called Na National High Blood Pressure Education Program Working Group on High Blood Pressure and Pregnancy. They define four categories. And whether you look in UpToDate or uh, EMED or any of these uh, resources, you're really you're going to see different categories, but this is the general four categories that you're going to see: chronic hypertension, gestational hypertension, preeclampsia, and then there's this thing called preeclampsia superimposed on somebody that has chronic hypertension. So, a woman has a BP 140 greater than 90. Well, if she's under 20 weeks and she's stable with no proteinuria, that's just chronic hypertension. If she's in that category 20 weeks of gestation, uh, under 20 weeks of gestation, and she has all these other manifestations, proteinuria, high BP, HELP syndrome, we call that preeclampsia superimposed on chronic hypertension. And then anything after 20 weeks, it's either preeclampsia, they've got proteinuria, and no proteinuria, it's called gestational hypertension, which hopefully resolves. Okay, BP of 140 over 90 on two occasions. And before 20 weeks of gestation or persisting beyond 12 weeks. How many were aware that it can last after postpartum? Okay. So, it, it, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I picked up a chart and it says cough, ankle sprain. I walk in the room, you know, in the triage. And I say, I'm going to give you this. I'm going to prescribe this. And the patient says, is it going to affect my pregnancy? <laughs> you know? And so I, I, I like to, I'm, I'm, it's, it's a peeve of mine. So I'll go to the triage nurse and I'll say, can you write pregnant with cough? Pregnant with abdominal pain? Pregnant with ankle sprain? You know, because when you're busy, you're just flying in from room to room. And it can be easily overlooked, right? So if you're pregnant, say that right at the top. And then what the chief complained, it really helps us out, you know, because believe me, we miss it sometimes. And so the same thing if they're postpartum. Huh? It's a, yes, it's a very important. And, um, and so if they're pregnant and they have a cough, I'll put the chart back and let the other doc see it. Because <laughs> I'm allergic. So, and then under, under uh, you know, after postpartum, I say the same thing. If they're postpartum, say they just had a baby, so that you'll look at their vital signs, because they could be preeclamptic. So chronic hypertension, treatment of mild to moderate chronic hypertension neither benefits the fetus nor prevents eclampsia. So this is kind of the old school thinking. Um, you know, when you're in the ED or admitting patients, you're going to always have uh, nurses and maybe even other primary docs say, hey, doc, this patient has a blood pressure of 180 over, you know, 80. Don't you want to do anything? And they're completely asymptomatic, so, right? So the old school of thinking was we had to treat all that. It's the same thing with preeclampsia. Um, if it's just mild, they say that the treatment can actually be detrimental. Okay, so the same thing uh, with people that are uh, having uh, isolated systolic hypertension. The American Heart Association has said that treatment can actually be detrimental. You just want to refer them with follow-up. 
So lowering blood pressure may actually result in decreased placental perfusion and adverse perinatal outcomes. But so 140 over 90, you know, the diagnostic criteria, but when it's 150 to 180 over 100 to 110 diastolic, then you might want to give some medicine. Sorry, do you also um, call a consult on that if there's no proteinuria? So if it's just like, gestational hypertension or and they, they're just really managing their blood pressures, do you still call, would you still call a consult? Okay, so consult. So if I had a lady that had a blood pressure hypothetically of 140 over 90, okay, and she was pregnant and I was concerned about it, I would definitely call OBGYN and coordinate follow-up. I don't think that in that situation that you're obligated to start medicine, especially if they can see them the next day. Um, it, or if, if they're symptomatic and their blood pressure is sky high, you know, 180 over 120, that's a different story. But I think otherwise, the safest thing you can always do in medicine when you practice out there is to at least consult and coordinate follow-up and give them and give them instructions. And a lot of times what's, what's, what's really important is not that you just tell them to follow up the next day, but please come back to the ER if you have any worsening of symptoms, new symptoms, any concerns, or if you have any difficulty with follow-up. I don't know if that answers your question. In addition, some of the treatment for you, especially models, like just reaching the, the diagnostic criteria, bed rest alone oftentimes really improves their position. So before you start medication at something that's just borderline, OBGYN may say, just take them off work, for instance. I don't, if they're typically like if this were uh, Dr. Hoon here, but they say, well, you can't work. You have to stay at bed rest. And if she just went to bed rest, her pressure may come down to 120 over 80 just at bed rest. So women in active labor with uncontrolled severe chronic hypertension requires treatment with IV labetalol and hydralazine. So we'll talk about that. Um, so those are the first-line treatments, labetalol and hydralazine. You can also use methyl dopa. The, the drug, I believe, uh, the brand name is Aldomet, is now discontinued. Really? Yeah, so oh this is a generic. Work slow. That, that methyl dopa, which I, I think when I was in medical school, that was pretty much first line. Um, and uh, it works really slow. It takes like three to six hours to, to take effect. Uh, and nifedipine, but not the sublingual kind, right? 20 years ago, primary docs, you go in the office, you have a blood pressure that's a little high, they had isolated systolic hypertension, no symptoms, and they'd give them a sublingual nif nifedipine. And then, adios. Uh, avoid, this is the big thing, you might see this on the board. So avoid ACE inhibitors and the ARBs. Atenolol, which is an isolated beta blocker, thiazide diuretics, and then avoid nitroprusside. If you use it longer than four hours, you can get fetal cyanide uh, toxicity. So, although it was invited to do pregnancy-induced hypertension, this is really the old term. It's now called gestational hypertension. So hypertension without proteinuria occurring after 20 weeks, and it normalizes within 12 weeks. 50% of these, between 24 and 35 weeks, are going to develop preeclampsia. So 30 over 15 increase in BP over baseline levels. No longer appropriate. 73% of patients will exceed 30. Uh, they're going to, their systolic is going to go up by 30, and 50% will exceed 20. 
Preeclampsia new onset hypertension, proteinuria after 20 weeks, resolves by six weeks. Characteristics mild or severe. So this is the thing, it's based on the degree of hypertension and proteinuria and the presence of other symptoms. So you're looking at all the target organs. You guys have this list memorized, right? <laughs> or maybe the night before boards. This, I, when, I, when I used to study for boards, I had slides like this, or even during med school. I would, this is like last minute stuff. <laughs> I would not waste my time memorizing. It's low yield sometimes. So the stuff on the left, um, you know, I don't think you're going to see on the ER boards. Uh, I think the stuff on the right, you might see what are the risk factors for preeclampsia. So chronic hypertension, antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, you know, age, multiple gestation, nulliparity, if they had previous eclampsia, and pregestational diabetes are some of the important ones. So risk factors, 20 to 1 if they have renal disease. They've got chronic hypertension. Uh, so these are the patients when they, you know, when they become pregnant and they're at a community ER or a community uh, OB doc's office, they're going to be watched very, very closely or actually maybe referred to a high-risk pregnancy site because it's 10 to 1. So family history, twin gestation, <coughs> age. And actually, race, African-American, is actually at the bottom. So a lot of these patients that <coughs> have preeclampsia, not just their feet, but they may actually have it in their hands and face, but that's not a diagnostic crit criterion. So we talked about this. And this is the actual diagnostic criteria overall, but you know, in the ED, like we were talking about a consult, even if it's just the first visit, uh, you want to be cautious because you may not see that patient again. You're certainly not going to bring them back for a repeat blood pressure check. Another thing you're not going to do, how many people do urine pertinuria checks for 24 hours in the ED? Okay, that's the way you can lose a job, actually, <laughs> if you have a patient sit in a room and do this. I just want to emphasize the criteria for systolic blood pressure and pressure because um, many times, if any chance, so that's a good point. So, under uh, just like diabetes, you have to understand what people's uh, baseline is because somebody that has a history of chronic hypertension before pregnancy are going to be able to tolerate a little bit more of a rise during their pregnancy than somebody that does not have just uh, chronic hypertension. A few bumps, 20 millimeters of uh, elevation of the systolic or 10 of the diastolic can actually put them into preeclampsia. Okay? So it's just like blood sugar with diabetics. Uh, people that don't have diabetes can't handle sudden drops of blood sugar versus a diabetic can ha handle uh, 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 a blood, I'm sorry, it's the other way around. Uh, so diabetics are used, used to a higher blood sugar level, so, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's the same line of thinking. So here's another list. Blood pressure greater than 160 or 110, diastolic, proteinuria, 
And then this is for severe eclampsia, okay? So they have all these manifestations of end organ damage. So they have visual disturbances, epigastric pain, which is actually very, very common. Almost 90% of patients that have uh, severe preeclampsia will have epigastric pain. Fetal growth restriction, impaired liver function, oliguria, pulmonary edema, thrombocytopenia. And so, just to clarify, you have to have go back one. You have to have the blood pressure criteria and the proteinuria and one of those. Right. So if you just have the two above, but no end organ damage or problems, then it would not be severe preeclampsia. Is that correct? That's correct. <coughs> Help syndrome. What does it stand for? <laughs> okay. I don't know what you guys were saying. It just sounded like it's very muffled. So, this is you're going to see this at some point. So, if you have a lady that's you know over 20 weeks pregnant in her third trimester, right, and she's got some epigastric pain, and you're thinking, oh, you know what, that's just probably gastritis or GERD or whatever, you know, you're pregnant or etc. Um, and uh, you don't consider this as a possibility. This is a bad miss, okay? So there's a variant of severe eclampsia. Occurs in up to 20% of pregnancies complicated by severe preeclampsia. So variable clinical presentation. A lot of them are normal tensive. And 13% don't even have proteinuria. So How do you make the diagnosis? We're going to talk about that next slide. So diagnosis, 30% of women are postpartum, 18% are term, and 52% are preterm. So diagnosis, just consider it in it. Somebody that looks sick is having epigastric right upper quadrant pain that's throwing up, and you're thinking it might be a virus or food poisoning or something. This is what you should do. Get a CBC, get a platelet count, and liver enzymes, okay? And the CBC is important because what? Not just the platelet count, but what you're looking for. You're looking for the actual smear, right? So you're looking for hemolysis. So if you see hemolysis there with a low platelet count and the LFTs are high, there's your diagnosis. So schistocytes and helmet cells and things like that? Helmet cells, yeah, schistocytes. So but they, yeah, <coughs> like not, all, not every lab does a smear. Right, so just like if you have somebody that came from India, like me, <laughs> so, uh, you know, if they came back sick and they have a fever and you order a CBC because you're worried about the white count, think about why you ordered a test, okay? Uh, when you order a chest x-ray for a condition, when you order a lab, think about why you're ordering a test because in this case, you're not really looking for the white blood cell count. You're looking for a smear, and so you have to call the lab. A lot of labs may not do it routinely. I don't know what your lab at this facility is going to do. So, like... Yeah, they, they skim, here they skim it. Skim and it. That's when they say there's toxic granulations or evacuated neutrophils. So they do skim it routinely, but they don't count the bands, and they don't necessarily look closely at it. 
Exactly, and it's just like the ultrasound where it's operator dependent. So it's uh, useful to make a call, and you know you don't know who, which lab is, tech is going to be on and what their process is, but you might want to call them just like you would a um, uh, person that's traveling. If you're looking for, like I was saying earlier, looking for malaria, you got to ask them to actually look at the smear. Um, so make a phone call to the lab. <coughs> Platelet count, liver enzymes. When the platelet count is less than 50,000 or active bleeding occurs, you might want to look out for a DIC. So if the patient's 19 weeks, would you still do this? 18 weeks, would you still do this? Or only at 20 and above? I would do it generally 20 and above. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll be completely honest. Um, the, there's that line that people draw at 20 weeks. Hey, under 20 weeks, they stay in the ED. Over 20 weeks, they go to labor and delivery. My feeling is in the community, um, People that are borderline, sometimes they're better served in a special area of the hospital with special consultants. So I think you should ha still have a moderate uh, degree of suspicion if you're riding the fence. Also, I think I totally agree with you. That there are a few clinical conditions that you might not be aware of when the patient actually presents that can cause preeclampsia before 20 weeks. One of them is molar pregnancies and the other is twin gestations. Now, you know, and of course, in our job, we never know what's going on with these people. They just show up. So um, somebody's 18 weeks pregnant, looks like they might have preeclampsia. You know, if they had twins, you have to be much more concerned about that this could be, even though it's not 20 weeks yet. So, yeah, and even more so than the twins, the, the, the ones that we'll miss is the molar pregnancies. Those are the ones that really will present under 20 weeks. So you're absolutely 100% right. So here's the stuff we were talking about, uh, peripheral blood sphere. You see damaged erythrocytes, cystocytes, Burr cells. You can see the pictures here. They look like uh, hearts. <coughs> so then they, they, you can actually classify the HELP syndrome. Class 1 is bad, under 50,000 platelet count. 2 is between 50 to 100. And three is 100 to 150. So prevention. So they have all these things out there uh, that you'll read in the medical literature that say, well, if you give them calcium, magnesium, omega-3 fatty acids, you know, antioxidant vitamins, it's ineffective. Uh, that, that I mean that they're that they work, but actually, you can look at the literature and it's kind of a plus or minus, and generally it may not help at all. Calcium reduces the risk of developing preeclampsia in high-risk women uh, and those with low dietary calcium. But if you just give it to, you know, just all women, it's, it's not going to have any uh, benefit. Low-dose aspirin does, is effective uh, at increased risk, uh, for women at increased risk of preeclampsia. So does everyone know what NNT is? Okay. So the number needed to treat is 69, uh, and 227 to prevent one fetal death. So low-dose aspirin is effective for women at highest risk if they've, uh, from a previous severe preeclampsia, diabetes, chronic hypertension, or renal or autoimmune disease. And the number needed to treat there is 18. So multi-organ damage from preeclampsia, cardiovascular, you get seizures, neurologic, get hyperreflexic, pulmonary, you can end up with pulmonary edema. 
Hematologic, you get volume contraction, low platelets. Renal, uh, you get oliguric, you can get ATN. And fetal increased perinatal morbidity, placental abruption, fetal growth restriction, fetal distress. So deliver, okay? Assess, assess gestational age, assess cervix, fetal well-being, lab assessment, relapse severe disease. So if they're term, always call OBGYN if they're sick and say this baby needs to come out, okay? If there is a delay, that's when you would actually start them on medications. Um, and you can do that simultaneously, but what I like to do is call the OB doc right away. So if the disease is mild, you can watch them like we said. So relapse severe disease, conservative management with mild gestational hypertension, that's not a term. And so this is what I was saying earlier. If they have mild gestational hypertension, have them follow up with the doc. Uh, they recommend twice weekly visits. They'll actually put them on a fetal monitor uh, every week. And they'll decide at what point that they want to deliver the baby. And it's just, just a list we talked about. So if they have preeclampsia, these are the <coughs> fetal indications. Severe uh, growth restriction, you monitor them and it doesn't look good. Oligohydroemnios. And maternal indications, if they're 38 weeks or greater, <coughs> their platelet counts under 100. They've got you know, other target organ damage. You're suspecting an abruption, and if they have very bad neurosymptoms, uh, especially seizures, but usually stabilize the seizure first. Persistent severe hyperepigastric pain, nausea or vomiting, and eclampsia. So one seizure qualifies them for delivery immediately? I think so, yeah. There's no reason to wait at that point. Obviously, you want to treat, I heard you talking about it on the board review on the prior lecture, that you de definitely want to treat them first. Uh, but you want to get everything rolling at once. <clears throat> so fetal monitoring, IV access, hydrate them. You want to treat, like anything else, treat mom, and the baby will get better, okay? <coughs> I don't know if it may require ICU. I don't, you know, at County USC, you had to be near death to go to the ICU as a patient. <laughs> But, you know, a lot of communities, a bump in the troponin will put you in the ICU. So feel out your medical staff, feel out your hospital, and figure out, you know, where they're best served. You put a real sick patient in the telly and they crump, you'll, hear, you'll never hear the end of it. So just feel out what the politics in your hospital are and what the bed situation is. You know, if you've got six people uh, in the ED that are all sick, five of them are intubated, and they have two beds, and you use the first two beds on somebody that may have, may have been able to go to telly, especially for a night. Uh, and then now you're going to be holding the other four ICU vented patients with limited nursing staff on a Friday night. So you have to th consider various factors. So may require ICU, I think that's why that's there. So severe crises are associated with hypovolemia, so make sure they're hydrated. And women that are pregnant, like anything, their vital signs can be inaccurate, right? Uh, and their va 
your assessment of their hydration status may be inaccurate. So you're saying somebody with a blood pressure of 150 over 100, where we normally wouldn't give fluids to raise the blood pressure, that's actually we're trying to lower it, we're giving the patient magnesium and lapetalol and stuff, would you still end up hydrating that patient? Uh, it, I think it's more important what your urinary output is. So if you put a Foley in, you want to make sure they're making urine. So your goal is not to pump in, like for DKA, six liters of fluid. Your goal is to maintain uh, uh, urinary flow through the kidney. That's what you're worried about, okay. especially with that gravid uterus pushing on everything in your insides. Okay. And so, so, if you have, so you're basically doing I's and O's, which would generate the patient into the unit setting anyway. Correct. Correct. And generally, you know, if you have somebody that's at really high risk for seizures and unstable vital signs that needs one-to-one -one assessment, that patient automatically should qualify for ICU. So just don't slam the fluids and avoid multiple doses in rapid succession. So this is somebody that you just give touches of fluid and watch their urinary output like we were talking about. A lot of time for the drug to work. I, I don't know how many times I've seen uh, in the hospital over the years where I've seen people give one medicine and they're like, ah, it's not working. And they give another medicine and they give another medicine and they give another medicine and another medicine and it's 15 minutes and they got morphine, fentanyl, dilaudid, demerol. They got some... Something they got some something for their anxiety when they're there for asthma, you know, and everything all of a sudden hit, and the patient's now with a GCS of three and requires intubation, and you're wondering what happened. Um, especially with people that have uh, are a little bit lighter on the body weight, um, or that have never ex had any types of pain medicines or blood pressure medicine, be very very careful. So titration is is your goal with anything. Avoid over-treatment. So we talked about the medical therapy. Clonidine is up there. You know, people still routinely use clonidine throughout the entire United States uh, for, like I said earlier, uh, isolated hypertension. It's probably not the best agent. So 5 to 10 milligrams every 20 minutes. Anybody use this drug here? So it's not that common, but it's it's this is... Uh, this is a first-line drug, so this is the one time that you're really going to be using it. And I think a board question you'll see is a lupus-like symptoms. You might see that somewhere. Labetalol. Anybody use this drug? Okay. Interesting and, and instructive that you start with the 20 milligrams. I see everybody starting with 10. Yeah. The first dose of labetalol is 20. I mean, yes, we're supposed to titrate up, but the first right. dose of labetalol is 20. Correct. I don't know. Yeah, and 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 not only that, they're afraid to titrate to forty. Right, or, and then it's not. And then it's right. And they say that you go twenty, forty, eighty. Your next dose is eighty. You don't want to double eighty to one sixty. So eighty is your cap. Okay. So this works a lot faster than that methyl dopa stuff that we were talking about. So onset's one to two minutes, lasts for six to 16 hours. Side effects, hypotension, like anything else, and it's alpha and beta blockade. 
Nifedipine, 10 milligrams PO, not sublingual, 5 to 10 minutes. You can get a reflex tachycardia, and it's a calcium channel blocker. The other medicine that's out there is nicardipine. Okay? And then there's nimodipine too. What do you use nimodipine for? Good. So prevent vasospasm, right? On a rebleed. Yeah, that sublingual thing is in order erroneously when we thought we wanted to precipitously drop somebody's blood pressure, we just have to puncture the capsule and squirt it under the patient's tongue. And that's not done at all. That's why it's the sublingual thing. It's not it wasn't even made as for sublingual administration. We defeated the capsule in order to do it too fast. Oh, we did a stroke you blood. So side effects of clonidine, you give this one uh, one milligram PO, but traditionally we in, in this setting, but you can traditionally we've used it point zero point one milligrams and titrate up. Uh, it's unpredictable. Uh, it's this process of it just adds the previous dose adds on to the other dose uh, and it's not titratable, so you can get a sudden drop in your blood pressure and you can get a reflex withdrawal. It's a central agent. Nipride, we talked about this. If it's, it's, you can use it, just be careful with it. Um, and after four hours, it needs to be stopped. But I wouldn't use it. Mag sulfate for seizures. So you give Four to six grams diluted in 100 milliliters of saline. Give it over 15 to 20 minutes. And then give a continuous infusion of one to two grams per hour. What's the first thing that's going to go if, once, if they become mag-toxic? Which, which reflex? Good. What level of mag do you see that? About seven to ten. That's the one that you might see. Then, you know, the... The next thing you might see is actually a cardiac dysrhythmia, and then you're going to get the apnea. Okay, so I think in terms of board purposes, if you hear anything about MAG in the treatment of seizure prophylaxis, it's going to be loss of patellar reflex, okay, level of 7 to 10. Seven to 10. And if they've got renal dysfunction, they may require a lower dose. Now, when I give people MAG, just like adenosine, what do you tell them? Yeah, you don't just go, hey, <laughs> right, adenosine, <laughs> and they're like, woo. <laughs> so, you know, tell your patients, hey, hey, look, I'm going to give you some morphine. You might feel a little loopy, and they'll go, ah, I don't want that stuff. I had that stuff last time, right? So adenosine, you're going to feel like you're at the top of the roller coaster. Your winds, you know, your, your stomach's going to fall on the ground, and you're going to get your breath taken away. Oh, okay, doc. Magnesium, you're going to, ma'am, you're going to feel a little flushed. That's normal. Oh, okay. But it's going to help you. Right? So warn people before you push medications. Less common if you drip it in slowly. But remember, we, time, time is, is of essence. So it's not a hypotensive agent. It's a centrally acting anticonvulsant. Reduces incidence of placental abruption. Right, so respiratory rate, DTR is undetectable, get altered. Your urinary output is less than 25 to 30 cc's per hour. And 
treatment is calcium gluconate. What's the difference between calcium gluconate and calcium chloride? What's the problem with calcium chloride? If you give it in peripheral IV. Yeah, so it burns, right? Um, it, I've used it in a peripheral IV. It doesn't always burn, but um, it has more elemental calcium in it, right? But calcium gluconate is usually stocked in most crash carts. I think the thought causes scarring, too, like vascular scarring. Yeah, Correct. If it extravasates, it's more dangerous than gluconate. Right. So make sure you got a good IV. you got a good big line. All right. So, so you would routinely, for preeclampsia, treat with both the magnesium and the antihypertensive labellol or hydralazine simultaneously. You wouldn't give the magnesium to see if the blood pressure comes down? Uh, correct. I, I don't know the answer to that. If, if somebody's actively seizing and they're, and they're hypertensive, I would probably give them magnesium to stabilize the seizure. If they're still hypertensive, I'd go ahead and titrate with some hydralazine or labetalol. Magnesium, like I said in that previous slide, is not really a hypotensive agent, so it shouldn't affect their blood pressure. So I don't think that they would uh, work on one another. I think they work independently of one another. There's a, a lot of controversy about 10 years ago if this was a seizure, then dilantin should be effective. Uh, and the neurologists actually all argued that, that magnesium was inappropriate and it should be dilantin. OB was arguing that magnesium is actually a, a, a true anticonvulsant in these patients, and it should be given first. This went back and forth. There's actually a really well-done trial that compared dilantin <coughs> and magnesium for eclampic seizures. They actually showed magnesium was a better anticonvulsant than was dilantin. And that changed the debate forever. And so now nobody argues about this. If you have a seizure, then magnesium is the drug of first choice, and you only go to an anticonvulsant outside of magnesium if magnesium fails. So we talked about eclampsia, new onset of seizures. Blood pressure is only mildly elevated in 30 to 60% of women who develop eclampsia. So it occurs anapartum 53% of time, intrapartum 19% of time, and postpartum 28%. So protect the airway, as always. Put them on a left lateral D-cube, give oxygen, airways, seizure prophylaxis, I mean seizure protection, IV access, max sulfate. These are some alternate uh, anticonvulsants. You can use Valium. I've never used sodium amytal, pentobarbital, dilantin. So after the seizure, assess maternal labs, fetal well-being, effective, effective delivery, transport when indicated. And you don't really need to immediately C-section them if you stabilize their blood pressure and had a seizure, but definitely this is a decision made by OB. Older complication, other complications, CHF, oliguria, persistent hypertension, DIC. So fluid overload. So avoid overhydrating them, restrict their fluids, really just watch what their urinary output is. You can give small doses of Lasix and you don't really need to give all this other stuff like Hespan. So 25 to 30 cc's per hour is acceptable for oliguria. If less, that's when you want to do the 250 to 50, 500 ml bolus 
Lasix is not always necessary. And after they deliver, they will diurese a lot of excess uh, fluid. And then they may still remain hypertensive uh, for several days. So that's a little bit normal, okay? Diastolic blood pressure less than 100 does not require treatment, as we were talking about previously, can be actually detrimental. And usually, if, it, if, if it's just preeclampsia, by six weeks, they're going to resolve. If it stays longer than six weeks, that's chronic hypertension. DIC rarely occurs without an abruption. Low platelets does not mean it's DIC, okay? And they're going to require replacement blood products and delivery. So mom, we felt the baby kick. See the gentleman with the black eye? Anyway, sorry. <laughs> yeah, Doc, I think my wife is ready to have the baby. Her contradictions are only 30 seconds apart now. Just a little humor. Thank you. Any questions? So I welcome you to 